maybe they're going to call Donald Trump the great eraser because what he's doing is essentially eliminating Barack Obama's entire legacy. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in New York City today, and we're joined in Washington by FP's executive editor for the web, Ben Pauker, FP's deputy managing editor for news, Laura Jakes, and Ed Luce, the Financial Times' chief U.S. commentator and columnist. Thank you again to our dedicated ER nerds for continuing to submit ideas. We appreciate your enthusiasm and hope that you'll keep them coming. Send your most brilliant suggestions and you may get a mug. We're at erpodcasts at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle and not too far from ground zero of the Hillary Clinton campaign here in Brooklyn, we had the following conversation. This is a special edition of our show uh, following this week's surprising elections. But Ed Luce, you're a global traveler, very sophisticated. You're even British, which means you're smarter than we are. Of course. Um, you probably saw all this coming, right? Oh, completely, yeah. Um, uh, I saw it as much as um, uh, as the most sophisticated uh, pollsters in the country. We, we all saw it like a, a huge a huge flame on the horizon. Um, no, I was caught as short as everybody, um, and um, I have no excuses. Um, I did travel a lot, being the global sophisticated traveler you described me as. I did travel a lot to Trump land and felt I had a handle on the level of enthusiasm for Trump that there was. But I, I did assume it would be uh, more than matched by minority vote and female vote and millennial vote for Hillary, and um, that obviously wasn't the case. Well, okay, let's just cast you aside, because obviously you're an Eastern elite, uh, very far <laughs> East. Laura, you are from Trumpland. You are from America's <laughs> heartland. These people are your people. What the fuck happened? Whoa. Um, well, <laughs> you know, I, I read something yesterday that I thought was very smart, that Trumpland is everywhere, that everything that we in the media or the establishment people uh, thought that there was this great unwashed mass in the Midwest and that it would be the East Coast and the West Coast that would pull Hillary through. In fact, those great unwashed masses are everywhere. And in fact, they're not necessarily unwashed. This could be your next door neighbor. This could be your your down your your cousin. Um, you know, I, I now live in the state of Virginia, which is a very battleground state. And Senator Tim Kane, Kane, sorry, God, two days, and I'm already forgotten his name. It's uh, forgotten who is who he is. Exactly. Right? Uh, anyways, he's. Uh, I I think everybody expected the fact that he was the the vice presidential running mate, that he was on the ticket, that that would pull what's normally a, a battleground state through strongly, and it went right down to the wire. I think the Clinton administration was shocked about that. I think Kane was embarrassed about it, and so the Trumpers are everywhere. We are Soylent Green as people. Wow. Oh my God, um, Ben! I'm, I'm going to jump know, in here I, and gloat for. Are, are you? Yeah, if you don't, if if I may, I'm going to gloat for a quick second. Uh, I'm the only. I won the office pool. I'm the only person that predicted the Trump victory, uh, and I'm not particularly. And why did Why did I'm you not, do that? I I don't I don't know. I'm not particularly happy, but you know, I I think part of it is what Laura's saying. 
Uh, I think also, you know, enormous part of this is that Hillary Clinton was just an extremely bad candidate. Um, and not because of her policies and not because of the issues she stood for, but because a lot of people, whether it's the East Coast media elite, we saw Trump's negative message. But a lot of people really saw positivity in the slogan, Make America Great Again, a, a sense of optimism. And I think that's one of the great things about Americans, that we're an optimistic nation. We want change. We want revitalization. We want a new iPhone every year. Uh, we don't need one, but there's something that's really positive about the uh, American people, and I think we should all hold on to that. But Hillary Clinton came into this election with so much baggage. She was not a new face. She didn't have a particularly compelling message. Um, and, you know, look, we've already forgotten Tim Kaine. He was an awful choice. <laughs> um, so so I, I, I wait, think— Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You are like such a, you know— you were like such a classic morning after journalist where it's like it's all now black and white. Tim Kaine was an awful choice, except he was pretty good. No, Hillary he was Clinton not, was he an was awful not, choice. Uh, look, he, he was, was not. No. OK, let's let me let me spread the spread the joy around Please. here a little bit and pick up on what you're saying. Ed. Mm hmm. Was Hillary Clinton really an awful candidate? She won the popular vote. If it wasn't for the peculiarity of the electoral system, which gives underpopulated states in the middle of the country more representation than more populous states, um, she would be the president of the United States right now. She may not have been the best candidate. You know, she clearly left a lot of votes on the drawing board. She got, I think, 10 million less votes than Obama did in 2008. So a bunch of people were not enthusiastic about her. But is it really fair to say she was a terrible candidate? Um, I think terrible is overstating it. Look, I've always thought she would make a good president. I've never rated her on political skills. Um, and, I, and I have to say, and this is not Monday morning quarterbacking, this is this is something I've been writing about for two years. She needed an economic message that went to the middle class in America. This is this is the the core of of what's happening, and it's been sort of obvious to many many people for a long time. But it didn't seem to be obvious to the Hillary campaign, and you've seen some of the reporting um, of how she an, avoided the midwestern states where she lost ultimately. She avoided them, either sort of assumed she'd win them. Um, or was pessimistic about winning over any white working class. And I think that that was a fatal mistake that doesn't require hindsight to point out. And just one other sort of thing to back that point up is in her otherwise very gracious um, concession speech um, uh, on Wednesday, she, you know, called out for the for the little girls, said you shouldn't lose hope. She called out to many groups. She called out to LG, LGBT um, community, which I f fully support. But there wasn't a word for the struggling middle middle class family there um, about keeping their hope alive. And I think that was a, a kind of fitting conclusion to a campaign that only really technically paid attention to them, that never really put them at the heart of, of, of what her vision would be as president, and she should have. Which is so strange when you think about 1992, right? I mean, when you look back at Bush versus Clinton in 92, one of the indelible images or memories that come up is about George H.W. Bush not understanding what the supermarket scanner was, right? I mean, how much does a gallon of milk cost? And so they came in in 91, 92, and they said, hey, change versus more of the same. It's the economy, stupid. So, hey, stupid, why didn't you pay attention to the economy? And even 2008 against Obama, she actually embodied that message. 
Okay, well, let's 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 move on from this. Okay, I mean, we don't even remember what the name of her running mate is. Uh, we are that was just the mind of one managing editor who's very tired right now. So after being up late that night, so I understand. We've, we've but, dealt but, with the Clintons. Let, let's move on to, to Trump. The the Clintons, yeah. Oh, Clintons, um, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, do you see what's happening here? They are like being consigned to the ash heap of history. Ben is like, I don't even remember who they were. I was totally for Trump. <laughs> Hillary who? Is that with uh, Bernal? Yeah, exactly. But but let's let's talk about what does this mean for the world. Now, you know, Donald Trump, I you know, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but Donald Trump doesn't come into office as the most experienced foreign policy candidate in history. In fact, he's the least experienced foreign policy candidate in history. And he didn't really come in with much of a an ethos, a foreign policy outlook, a Trump doctrine. Uh, I was on the Diane Reem show earlier the, today, the day we're recording this, and Susan Glasser of Politico made the point when I said that he had no doctrine that, no, he's been consistent in his support of authoritarians uh, and his embrace of bad guys around the world, which, by the way, has been reciprocated since his election because the bad guys really seem to love him. But, you know, he's going to Washington. In fact, as we record this, he's just been in Washington. He's just met with the president. He's met with Paul Ryan. He's 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 met with Mike Pence, which can't have been, you know, uh, something he's done very much in the past couple <laughs> of months. He's now, you know, sort of thinking, well, i got to hire some people. I've got a job to do. I'm going to have to move. I'm not going to live in a house with gold toilets anymore. Things are changing. Ben, wh- what can we expect from Donald Trump foreign policy mastermind? It's hard to say, but it's going to be interesting, that's for sure. I, you know, I think a lot has been made about his love for Putin and Russia. I, you know, that is probably overstated. I would imagine that when it comes to Syria, there will be a core focus on ISIS, uh, as there has been in his political rhetoric. So if that means working with the Russians uh, a little bit more, we'll probably see that. This trade war that he has sort of promised with China uh, uh, will be interesting. I don't think there's any love for you know the authoritarian government there on his part. And if you look at you know a piece we published by uh, Peter Navarro and Alexander Gray, two Trump advisors, it it is you know a pretty whether you agree with it or not, it's a relatively serious policy argument for how to deal with a rising China uh, and greater, as they said, sort of peace through strength uh, in that region. So, you know. If he is, uh, I think it is probably fair to say that Trump, it might be hard for him to name the president of Egypt or a handful of foreign leaders. But oh, well, he met, he met with Sisi and said he loved him, actually. So. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I, I, I think it's the question is really who he is going to bring around him, right? Um, you know, I think Corey Shockey or, or someone wrote for us recently that the, the question is whose Trump, uh, Trump advisors are. He might not care a lot about foreign policy. Early on, there was that story when he offered the vice presidency to Kasich. She said, you get to run domestic policy, right? And you get to run foreign policy. And I think the response was, well, what, what is Donald Trump's job going to be? And, and Donald Trump Jr. said, well, he's going to make America great again. Um, so, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that, <laughs> that, that's really, really heartening. Um, Laura, you've got, you know, all of FP's thousands of reporters out combing Washington um, uh, trying to find out the answer to Ben's question. 
Uh, give us in 60 seconds who those people are going to be around Trump. Okay, so with no certainty in hand, but with the the rument that I can offer, Senator Jeff Sessions may be the top contender for the Pentagon, former House Speaker Newt Gingrich at the State Department, Lieutenant General Mike Flynn may be the new national security advisor. Um, I'm trying to think who else we have talked about then. Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani, of course, at the Justice Department. We have a, a story that we're writing right now, actually, quoting John Yu, who wrote the, the torture memos during the George W. Bush administration early on in 2001. Uh, these are the, the torture memos that allowed for the use of interrogated uh, enhanced Interrogation, sorry, waterboarding, for lack of a better word. And even John Yu says that the Trump Justice Department is going to be very frightening. So it'll be interesting to see how many people he will want to pull from Congress. Um, He needs to have some allies in Congress right now. There were a lot of people that came out, a lot of Republicans who came out during the campaign who had a lot of concerns about his policies. And so if he does want to get a lot done, if he wants to push his mandate through, he's going to have to have some allies on Capitol Hill. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to bring them to his administration. So, Ed, you go, you know, you hang out in all of these cocktail parties and things in Washington and you're hobnobbing with the policy elites over sherry or whatever it is that policy elites drink. Ben probably has a glass of sherry and fine crystal with him right at this moment. In front of me, yes. In front of you, exactly. And 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 so we always do that, by the way, folks, here on the podcast. <laughs> We're sitting here having sherry and brie. Uh, I'm and drinking NyQuil how, to be. To yeah, be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she has a bit of a problem there. Uh, <laughs> and laughing at OxyContin America, who's just elected this guy president. But in any event, you know, there was this thing where all these Republican foreign policy types, uh, including many people that we like, said, well, no way, I'm not having anything to do with Trump. And now in the past like 36 hours since he's been elected, there's this sort of groundswell of, well, you know, he's president now. We we may need to serve him. I, I may need to accept that high level job that I've always wanted for my whole life out of patriotism. <laughs> um, and, you know, I sort of see this kind of the worm is turning. And as ever, you know, uh, no one ever went broke overestimating the self-interest of a policy wonk in search of a job. Uh, are you hearing anything of this? Are you starting to see some of your sherry sipping friends uh, <laughs> ready to move into some of these jobs? Well, let, let, let's start, let me just start by picking up the previous um, speculation as to who's going to get which jobs. We didn't mention Treasury, and I was fascinated today to see that the Trump transition team under Chris Christie has looked at Jamie Dimon. So let's just put that in context. Jamie Dimon of Morgan Stanley following an election where the angry excludeds want to stick it to the elites and Trump promises to stick it to the elites. First person he considers for Treasury Secretary is the richest investment banker on Wall Street. Well, for Christ's sakes, Trump is a billionaire. Has this, uh, nobody noticed this? You know, I mean, Trump is the the champion against the elites and he lives in like a skyscraper and, you know, flies around in a helicopter in his own private jet. Oh, yeah, he's really going to stick it to the elites. But but let's, you know, go so on. And by the way, policy. other names. 
Yeah, other names. Well, what about this? The wonkocracy, you know, the the you know, is Richard Haas never came out that strongly against Donald Trump? He didn't you know, come out against of, him at all. And didn't Trump do right. an event at CFR? Uh, and right? neither yeah. did Steve Hadley. Yes, he did an event at CFR. Uh, Steve Hadley didn't come out against him. Um, uh, there, are, there are certain names. And of course, Kissinger never came out against him. Not that he's himself going to, you know, be young enough to take a job. But there are certain sort of pragmatic types uh, around who kept their counsel and whose whose view is we serve whoever's in power to the best of our ability to put a you know the most morally positive gloss on it um there are plenty out there whose unequivocal condemnation of trump would make it very very difficult for them to um to take a job um with him i mean i'm thinking i don't know people like uh, michael chertoff or Bob Selleck, you know, who are really sort of absolutely clear that this man is not fit. He's reckless. He's irresponsible, psychologically unfit to be president. And if they if they are offered a job, Trump could quite easily turn around and offer them a job. I mean, he's uh, uh, he, he loves people who change their mind about him. I don't know. I think there's a there's a lot of vengeance out there. And the Trump campaign has said that anyone who signed these never Trump letters, you know, like our many of our shadow government contributors, Peter Fever, Corey Shockey, Will Inboden, a long list of Republicans from the Bush administration have signed these letters. And the Trump campaign has unequivocally said that they there is no place for them in the administration. Um, you know, well, so there isn't. But let me ask you a question, Ben. We can rule out those 50 people. There are 4,500 jobs the president of the United States has to fill. Uh, Trump knows like 20 people. <laughs> so, you know, no, you know, who'd like have these jobs. You know, I was I was watching this, watching the his acceptance speech and looking at Baron Trump and just wondering if Trump knows, like Donald knows his son's middle name. The, uh, well, it was like, it's like, I don't a, know, it was crazy. <laughs> he didn't even hug he his He may son. not. And we should, we should get to Melania in a second. But, but, but let's talk about this a second. The, the, he doesn't know people, so he's going to hire people, and they're going to hire people. Right. And slowly but surely, around Donald Trump, there is going to be built essentially a government of the establishment, regardless of what he says, because these are the only people who know how to do these jobs. You know, I'm not sure and that's slowly, true. slowly, he's well. Well, let me <clears throat> let, yeah, me, I mean, let go, me present yeah. my premise. Let me present my premise before you blow it up. Um, <laughs> But but feel free to blow it up afterwards. But, you know, in these 4,500 jobs, you're going to get a lot of people who would have been in any administration. They would have been in the Jeb Bush administration. And he's got to deal with the Hill. And he's going to say, well, I'm going to tell that Paul Ryan what to do. But, you know, Paul Ryan's not actually going to do that. And Mitch McConnell's not actually going to do that. And he's then going to say, I'm going to tell foreign leaders what to do. And, you know, the foreign leaders aren't actually going to do whatever he says because they're actually from another country. And so, you you know, you could end up with the system putting constraints on Trump that might actually limit his ability to do some of the really crazy stuff he said he wants to do. Anyway, is that possible? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I think it's possible. You know, the the promises of a, of a campaign trail, whether it's in this crazy election cycle or Obama's first or second, the promises of the campaign trail always fall uh Pray to the nature of our government, which prohibits the executive branch from doing whatever the damn well it wants to. That said, you know, he has a mandate. The Republicans own the House. The Republicans own the Senate. Trump will be able to get his picks for the Supreme Court through. So I, I think there's a little bit more license for 
Trump's policies. But, you know, we, we've talked about this before, and uh, I, I think that the, the course of foreign policy is dictated by lots of external factors, not just what the person sitting in the White House wants to do. It's determined by what, you know, a crazy person like Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines does, and it's there are, you know, exogenous events like the Arab Spring that no one sees coming. So I think it is fair to say that the Trump presidency, we may not see a bunch of really bold policy positions that actually get affected into courses of action. But going back to the earlier point, it's not only 4,500 positions, as you put, that Trump needs to fill. I think there's going to be a lot of people who are career foreign service officers in the State Department or people who worked at USAID who will either be out of jobs because of funding or not want to work under a Trump administration. Loyal Americans who just say, you know what, I'm not going to do this. Um, so it might be a whole lot more he's got to fill. And there are just a lot. You know, these two people I was quoting, Peter Navarro and Alexander Gray, who wrote this uh, China article for me. Peter Navarro is a business professor from University of California, Irvine. And he is the only economist. He's the actually only economist on Trump's econ team. This is a guy who's well, that's, that's, in the wilderness. That's not true. Are, it's just and, not true. Okay, but this other – so the, his, his co-author, Alexander Gray, and I'm not going to cast any aspersions against him. He's a yes, senior you are. defense. You're about to. I uh, can feel it, All ben. right. You got when did, me. He's a, when did he so, graduate college, Ben? 2011. Senior defense advisor. <laughs> uh, if I could just – He's not even – he's just barely a senior in college, but she was a senior defense advisor. Um, but – yeah, go on, Laura. No, I was just going to say, as we're playing this name game, just one very quick thought. I have not heard of any women who are being considered for top national security or diplomacy jobs. I've heard of very few names of people of minority groups. Uh, Walid Fares, I think, uh, is one that I've heard, right, who's the Mideast advisor. But I'm not hearing – I'm hearing a lot of white dudes. Yep, I, I'm, I'm, I, yeah, with the exception of Ivanka Trump. And um, you know, Jared, what is she? Jared Kushner. Oh, she's a woman. Uh, she's a woman. Yeah. She's oh, not yeah. a minority. Yeah. It depends. It depends. I mean, her husband's Jewish, and she's a Jewish convert, right? So maybe you could technically, in Trump's definition, define them as a. But she would be advising his she, administration. She she she, she, she and her husband play. have been at the core of the campaign. Any sort of well, they can moment. be advisors, but they they can't actually have senior jobs. No, it's no. against the law since 1967 that you can't actually put your family in senior jobs. When you watch Washington at work, Ed, you've been a Washington you know, insider for a long, long time. Um, when you watch it at work, don't you think all of these people in Washington you know, think that they're going to be able to tame and contain Trump in order to achieve their agenda? Yeah, I, I think that people um, overestimate their ability. I, I also think they underestimate the degree of consistency that uh, crudely fashioned, though it may be, that Trump has held in terms of his view of the world for a long, long time. I think he's been um, a mercantilist on trade for um, since the 80s, a uh, Japan basher in the 80s, and he sort of morphed that into China bashing. I think he's been um, a critic of free-riding, free-loading allies um, for a long time. I think he's been an America firster for a long time. And I think these are sincerely held views. And I think this is a massive rupture. Um, however sort of difficult it might be to implement some of what he's promised in practice, I think Trump will change the direction and this will be a massive rupture in America's 70 or more year record of upholding Pax Americana, of, of speaking for universal values, 
and of being prepared to put money and military on the line on occasions uh, in order to to, to, to undergird them. Uh, you know, sometimes recklessly, sometimes um, admirably. Um, and I don't think that Trump well, explain, is about explain, that. Well, explain how that's a rupture. Obama actually didn't move the ball on trade very much at all. He didn't really get that engaged with the rest of the world. Wherever he could avoid it, he stayed out of it. You know, he talked a good game about getting tough on, on, on enforcing some of these issues. I don't think, you know, Trump would do what he did on, say climate but but is there where where are we going to see a difference well look i mean the first year you do touch on something very interesting there which is that obama has been disengaging you know there's been a pulling back there's been um uh, there's been a reluctance to fight wars and there's been a reluctance even to threaten to fight wars but he he to be fair to obama did have a pretty robust and i think best you could do in the circumstances trade agenda and that tpp was a pretty cutting edge deal and i'm using the past tense because it is now dead um and i think it was the core of his asia pivot or the economic well, but, well, that, but again excuse you excuse me for interjecting a fact here but tpp was a bush administration initiative that Obama never really put his shoulder into towards the end and didn't put it in enough to actually get it done. So Obama's trade agenda is zero for eight, right? It, it is. I, I think he put a little bit more. I mean, but Bush began it, but Obama really picked it up. And Mike Froman, you know, when he became USTR, was really tireless and he had the backing of the White House. You know, they were together at Harvard Law School. This was a, a guy Obama trusted and knew, and he had Obama's okay, authority. Okay, quick. You have 20 seconds. Name Obama's first term USTR. Um, gosh, 20 seconds. Um, um, I Come on. Let me Google. Uh, Let me Google. Roger Stone. Come on. <laughs> no, Come on, Ben. No, I'll give you a hint. Dallas. I'm going to give you, that's a hint. Jerry Jones. No, not the Cowboys. <laughs> Alex Jones. Dallas. No, is it Jones? No, not Alex Jones. <laughs> All right, Jones. illuminate us, David. You've called us out. You win. Uh, you win. Uh, the point that I'm trying to make here is. Wait a minute. So answer the know. question, David. Who is it? I forget the okay. <laughs> but, but 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 you know he's like some trade lawyer from from Dallas who didn't do anything for four years, right? I mean that's that's the point. Is so, there was no trade policy. David, you were in the Clinton administration during NAFTA, right? What do you, what do yeah, you... Breitbart Breitbart accused me of actually being responsible for NAFTA, which I was kind of I that was, was a, like, that's a nice wow. moral, right? Yeah. That's a yeah. that's a promotion. I'll take. Um, yeah, I'll take it. I think NAFTA was a huge success. I mean, there you what go. Do you, how do you see this? How do you see the the NAFTA renegotiation or pullback from NAFTA happening? I don't see it happening. How do you do that? I mean, you can renegotiate. You can add a little bit of this and that. Justin Trudeau said, oh, I'm happy to sit down and talk about NAFTA. Do you think Trump is going to go and blow up the trade relationship with Mexico, which is one of our largest trading partners? Do you think he, you know, when somebody sits down and explains to him that the Mexicans would take retaliatory steps that would actually cost the United States huge numbers of jobs, you think he's going to do that? You know, this is actually a treaty. It's not like the Iran deal, which is uh, several steps less than a treaty, and the you know the White House has actually some latitude on that. Uh, it's something where the United States' latitude to step away from it is quite limited. He'll try, possibly. He may try to you know build another wall on the border without you know sort of any. Uh, ability to follow through and his promise to have the Mexicans pay for it because they're going to say get 
get stuffed on that. Um, but in terms of renegotiating NAFTA, it's just not going to happen. It's just not a possibility. He might add a bell or a whistle to it, uh, but it's actually, if you look at it from any metric, has been one of the best deals that the United States has ever done. Created jobs, created growth, and you know his campaign rhetoric aside, it's just you know it's just not something that he can undo without huge negative consequences for the U.S. So. The, the 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 point is, and I guess with all of this, is he said a bunch of things. I'm going to do this with the Iran deal. I'm going to do this with NAFTA. I'm going to do this with China. I'm going to do this with our NATO allies. Are any of the things that he promised on the campaign trail things that you actually think a realistic chance of happening? I think the Iran deal's dead. Absolutely. That's for sure. I, I think maybe not dead, but I think there's going to be a lot of movement on it for sure. And Paris, you know, the Paris climate agreement, uh, the U.S. will pull out of that to the extent it can. And look, Trump, you know, you, you might be right about uh, about NAFTA, but Trump is not a person that even honors the contracts he has signed with the people who have built things for him. So the extent to which he will be able to negotiate or slip out or just say, you know what, I'm not going to honor, I'm not going to pay that. I think that's dangerous. I, I fear. I mean, I can list a few things I think he will carry out, uh, obvious ones like the tax cuts. You know, he's got a GOP Capitol Hill. That's going to happen. The Supreme Court nominees will be confirmed. But there, there, there are one or two that I fear that are at the edge of what he's hinted at, such as basically cutting Ukraine loose. Um, the sort of more well, Can you imagine waking up in Ukraine the day after the election? I mean, it was like, I'm sure you woke up and you were like, oh, reach for the vodka. We are screwed because <laughs> there is no way Trump is going to put any pressure on Putin with regard to Ukraine. And if you're living in Estonia, you can't feel too good either, can you? I thought Angela Merkel's statement um, of um, congratulations to Trump was the most interesting and the most guarded. Um, and it was, it, it, you know, it was a very clear statement. We are prepared to work with you if we uphold the same values. Um, and, you know, this was clearly looking eastward, um, in, in, in her case, to, to the Russian wolf at the door. And I think, yeah, if I were Ukrainian, I would have woke, Ukraine, I would have woken up feeling a bit like one of, uh, one of the whatever it is, 11 women who've made um, sexual molestation allegations against Donald Trump, whom he's promised to sue. Uh, I would have felt very, very nervous about the, the new broom in Washington. By the way, Ron Kirk... Um, oh, you were asking just, who Obama's first term USTR was. Sorry, yeah. I thought you said who is Trump's USTR going to be. No. I remember oh, Ron really. That sounds oh, like revisionist no. history. Wow. I, I, I moderated, okay. I moderated sure. him on some scintillating yeah. now panels. You know. yeah. Now you know. Some yeah. scintillating yeah. panels. Okay. Well, yeah. it just came to me. I'm glad that synapse is still active yeah, well, in my that's, brain. That's why but, I said Roger Stone. I, I wasn't being that yeah. facetious. That, well, that's... Pretty facetious, actually, Roger Stone. Was, but in any event, yeah, but not that it, facetious. The as we as we look ahead, I think you you're right. I mean, among the first things you can expect to go actually is Obamacare. I think that's you know that is out the window very quickly. What about the rest of Obama's legacy? You think the Iran deal is under siege? That's another possibility. What about Syria? Do you think our policy there is going to change? I would suspect kind of. Going after what Ben said, I mean, if we do see some warming between Trump and Putin, Trump has made very clear he's all too happy to step back and to let Russia kind of run the, the show with, by the way, the Assad regime in Syria. And that's going to be a huge reversal 
of what the United States stance has been trying to help and defend some of the the majority Sunni uh, population in Syria. That would be a, a massive, massive change in U.S. policy. Also in regards to Syria, the, the refugee outflow that's heading west across Europe, compared to Europe and to other nations, the United States has taken in a very small number of refugees. But if a President Trump carries out what he has threatened or said he is going to do, most of those people would be turned away, if not all of them. Well, I think that's a very interesting point, right? If he comes into office, eliminates Obamacare, steps back from the Iran deal, steps back from the climate deal, embraces Russia in a big shift in policy in Syria, um, starts to uh, really add tension to the relationships that exist in the Pacific that we depend on, maybe they're going to call Donald Trump the great eraser because what he's doing is essentially eliminating Barack Obama's entire legacy, right? It looks like that. It really does, yeah, when you put it together. But it's not just Obama's entire legacy, right? It's kind of what Ed was saying earlier. It's this huge rupture of Pax Americana and this world order that we've been kind of – the United States has been at the forefront of generations now. Going back to okay, World so War we II, got, correct? We, we've got four minutes left. We've got four minutes left. And, and I, I, I just don't want to beat up on Donald Trump. He is the president of the United States, the people of the United States – well, no, the Hillary won the popular vote. Well, the Electoral College of the United States really looks like it's going to make him the president. He deserves a lot of respect, I guess. So the what office, are you looking the forward to? respect. The office does. What are you looking forward to? Just give me one or two things from the Trump foreign policy that you're just saying, I can't wait for this. Page views. Page views. Stop. For foreign policy. (laughs) For foreign policy. There is self-interest. There you go. There you go. I really love the way you think there, Ben. uh, What about you, Laura? Perhaps you've got a broader view of the world. I think uh, Cuba is going to go gangbusters, right? I mean, we are going to probably start seeing tourists allowed into Cuba, bringing back all of the the rum and cigars we can possibly stuff into our pocketbooks. Um, he's going to up that tourist channel. He is going to bring uh, trade missions down there. It is just going to go <laughs> gangbusters. <laughs> Cuba. Cuba. Wow. That's a big one. That's a big one, Ed. Uh, Obama anything? thought it was a big one, so um, yeah, you know, it wasn't. Uh, for, from a parochial point of view, I think that people in uh, the, the original land of Brexit, my my own country, are hoping, uh, maybe wishful thinking, but um, are hoping that if Trump does have a trade agenda, it's a, a U.S. U.K trade deal and that they can pull their chestnuts out of the fire because there are, you know the only one they've got going at the moment is a UK-India trade deal, which would take roughly 250 years to negotiate unfavorably to Britain. So they, they're hoping that you know if Trump has a trade agenda, this is one. He, he's clearly an Anglophile, whatever that means in his, in his sort of um, definition of it. And uh, his party, Capitol Hill, are not going to are not going to have too many difficulties, political difficulties, selling a, a UK trade deal as opposed to a, an Asia Pacific one. So, Ed, you know, you and I had a conversation about this during our highly successful comedy club appearance earlier this week, <laughs> um, which was very successful until about nine oh one, when everybody started to look at their phones and think, "What the fuck is happening?" Anyway. Uh, But one of the things that we said there was that if Trump lost and Hillary Clinton won, that this would leave the United Kingdom as the stupidest country in the English-speaking world because of Brexit. (laughs) But Trump has won. 
So is the UK now off the hook? And it, is it your official Financial Times position that the United States is now the stupidest country in the English-speaking world? I think we're, we're competing for the dumb gold medal, um, you know, and it's a, it's a close one. Um, about the only successful joke I cracked um, on Tuesday night um, before the humor drained from the room was that you in America had a choice between a woman and a vicious anti-immigrant candidate for president. But we in Britain already had both qualities in the same leader, in our prime minister. Um, well, now you've got Trump. And I cracked that joke without expecting Trump to win. And um, it's still hard to digest the the enormity of, of what just happened. It, 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 I think the world's not going to be the same again. Well, I'll tell you, I'm not sure I agree. I'm not sure that any one individual can make a big enough difference. Uh, I do think that Trump has to work within the constraints of his party. I think he will have to work within the constraints of the institution. Barack Obama uh, was a strong-willed guy with the most powerful White House in recent memory uh, and constantly lamented how little of his international agenda he was able to get done. Uh, part of that was the Congress, which will not be a constraint on Trump, but part of that is the world, which will be a constraint on Trump. Uh, and in fact, other things are true. Donald Trump was wrong. The United States doesn't need to be made great again. We are great, and we are rich, and we are growing, and we do have all the benefits that we had the day before the election. And so my sense is that the U.S. is probably greater than Trump is bad and that things will turn out okay in the long run. And I think the rest of the world may step up. And if it's the end of Pax Americana as we knew it, and it leads perhaps to a world with greater burden sharing and more listening between allies, that wouldn't be the end of the world either. So, you know, I, I have to say, I want to end this on a slightly positive note. I remain optimistic. Uh, but fortunately, we will stay vigilant in this new Donald Trump-led planet uh, as Keeping Up with the Kardashians enters the White House, and we have a full-time, 24-hour-a-day reality show intersecting with world affairs and national politics, which, I mean, that sounds like must-see TV. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Lara. Thank you, Ed. And we look forward to joining you at our regular time next week, yet another edition of uh, navel-gazing and hand-wringing over what has happened this past Tuesday. That's it for the ER. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.